So for Psalm 84, Psalm 84, let's begin by looking at the poetic devices. I think I see one in verse 2. Anyone notice that one as well? The, uh, my soul longed, right, because the soul is not the person, right, but it's a part of the person, so, so we have a part standing for the whole. Uh, we also have heart and flesh sing. As a general rule, your heart does not sing, doesn't have a mouth, right, but he's saying as a whole person, the heart representing who he is, right? Um, all right, verse, verse 3. Yeah. The bird's not, as a general rule, looking for real estate other than on, on your real estate, right? Um, but finding a house would be to find a spot to build a nest, right? Uh, verse 5 is really interesting. What's the picture that we see there? Yeah, in whose heart are the highways to Zion. Now, the words to Zion are supplied, I believe, from verse 7. But that's the ultimate aim of it, that there is someone whose heart is oriented toward gathering with God's people in Jerusalem, I think is the basic idea of it. Uh, verse 6. Right. So there's some dispute about whether that word vaca means weeping. If it's derived from a verb, then it means weeping, and if it's derived from a noun, it there's a similar word that means balsam trees. Balsam trees would occur more out in the wilderness, and so I think the idea of wilderness being turned to a place of water is probably the most correct picture there. Um, so there's a spring coming up in the wilderness, there's rain appearing as a blessing in the desert, that kind of idea, okay? Uh, how about in verse 8? What figure of speech do we see there? Yeah, give ear, right? It's a, hey, pay attention. You know, same kind of idea, but it's a figure of speech. You don't actually someone to give you your ear, right? I was watching a funny video the other day, and the guy was pretending to teach a little kid in Sunday school. He said, give me your eyes. The little kid's like, you know, you can't have my eyes, right? But... That's not what we mean. We're saying, pay attention, look at me, right? When we say, give ear, we're saying, listen to me, right? And so that's his plea for God. Verse 9. Okay. Behold our shield. I, it's true that God is our protector, but it does say it's our shield. So he's not saying, be our shield, but he's saying, behold our shield. So I think the shield is probably representing someone else. Um, probably the king, given the description of looking on the face of your anointed. So I think he's saying the king is their protector. God, behold the king. But God is definitely their protector. We see that verse 11, God is the shield, right? So we'll get to that in a moment. But here I think it's a reference to the king as the protector of the people, their shield. And he's saying, God, uh, 
be his help, essentially. Um, Jesus is the anointed one of God. I don't know that this psalm is typically seen as a messianic psalm, but there is a sense in which all of the psalms point to and anticipate Jesus. So uh, I wouldn't, I don't think it rises to the level of like a prophecy, like uh, Jesus will be born in Bethlehem or anything like that. But I think there is definitely a parallel between here is God's anointed, the king who's reigning in Jerusalem at the time, and Jesus who is God's anointed one. Yes, I think there's a, definitely a parallel. Yeah. Uh, verse 10. When he says, stand at the threshold, that's a figure of speech representing something. What would, what would be the idea there? If you're standing at the threshold of the tabernacle or of the temple... He's at the doorway, so some translations will have as a doorkeeper in the house of my God, right? Is the doorkeeper the most important person in the household? No. So there is at least the idea of service. There's potentially the idea of being excluded from actually going in the house, but he's content to stand outside because he's nearby. Talk more about that as we get into that. But there, there's at least this idea of service and of lowliness and of potentially not being able to enter. Uh, verse 11, and this is, I think, Norma, this fits with what you were saying, the idea of God being a sun and a shield. Um, what does that mean, that God is a sun and God is a shield? What ideas do those represent? So sun could be power, okay? What else? What else does the sun Light, which light is important, but also what does the sun lead to? Growing crops. Growing crops. So in their, in their culture, we could probably say provision, right, potentially, which light is part of God's provision. I'm not discounting that at all. But probably they would have been thinking the sun is what's necessary for the crops. And that if he's the shield, then it would be what? God's, God's protection, right, as, as Norm was mentioning with the other verse, Okay. Um, if he gives grace and glory and no good thing does he withhold, uh, the grace and glory is probably the idea of favor and honor, right? Which would be synonyms, so we could argue whether those are figures of speech or not. But at the end of the, of the verse where it says, walk uprightly, right? He's not saying walk like standing tall, right? What does he mean? Okay. Living in what way toward God? Righteously, obediently, that, that sort of idea, I think. So we have some repeated thoughts in verses 1 through 4. And then again in verse 10. What's, what's one of the things that keeps getting referenced? Now, I know verse 2, it talks about longing and yearning. I don't mean that part. But what is he longing and yearning for? Okay, God's house, the dwelling place, verse 1, the courts of the Lord, verse 2, the bird has found a house, verse 3, the altars, verse 3, 
those who dwell in your house, verse 4, and then down in verse 10, a day in your courts, threshold of the house. So house, dwelling, like all that sort of idea, right? Uh, we also see in verse 5 and 7 what word is repeated several times. Yeah, strength. So verse, verse 5, the man whose strength is in you. Verse 7, they go from strength to strength. Uh, verse 6, you have the idea of spring and rain and blessings. And then in verse 11, you have the idea of sun and shield, grace and glory. All of these, I think, are collective pictures of God's blessing on his people, right? Water springing forth in the desert, God's provision and protection, the honor and favor that comes with being connected with God. All of these are signs of God's blessing on his people. We also, even more clearly in verse 4, we see how blessed, verse 5, how blessed, verse uh, 12, how blessed. And so verses 6 and 11 are kind of the blessings, and verse 4, 5, and 12 are kind of the people who are experiencing the blessings and some things that are true about them. And then verse 8 and 9, we have sort of this, this petition, if you will, Hear my prayer, give ear, behold, and look upon. So the one is hear us, and the other is see us, right? So I think those are some of the important report, repeated thoughts in these sections. If we were going to divide it into sections, um, I think one through four seems to go together, right? And then five through seven, potentially five through eight. It is interesting that they have the word Selah after verse eight, even though verse 8 seems to go with 9. And we've talked about that before. Often the word Selah will come after at the end of a section, but sometimes it will come after the first phrase of a new section too. And I think that might be what we see here, that it goes between 4 and 5, but then it goes after verse 8, which is the introduction to the last four verses. Um, what type of psalm do we think that this is? Yeah, so it doesn't seem to be a lament. It doesn't seem to be particularly royal or messianic because it just has the one allusion to the king kind of as an aside in verse 9. Uh, could be a song of trust because he talks about trust, but I think probably the idea of it being a praise hymn or a praise song is, is probably the closest fit here. And again, like we've talked about before, there's some overlap between these different types. Uh, what... What truths do we see about God? He's powerful, he's a protector. Okay, God's powerful, God's a protector. Okay, he's the source of our strength. Is worship of God important? I think we see that idea. What about God's value in and of himself? not very great or immeasurably worth it. Yeah, he's worth it, right? Uh, he's worth the praise. We should, the verse 2, this idea of longing after him, which we'll get to in question 6. What about God's attitude toward prayer? Does he reject prayer? Does he hear prayer? Does he not really care about prayer? Yeah, I think it's pretty clear. The, there is a give ear and behold in verses 8 and 9. 
and then an expectation. He, does, he just moves on as though that's a given, right? He doesn't, he doesn't act like, well, maybe God isn't going to hear, right? And that's kind of a question mark in some of the laments, but it's just an assumed thing in this one. What, and then, you know, God cares for his people, right? Uh, we see that at the, end of the, at the end of the psalm. What about truths for us? Us in relationship to God, what should our relationship be? Apathetic, fervent desire, somewhere in between. We should definitely trust Him. Yeah, we see that in verse 12, okay? So we should trust in God. What about verse Verse 2 indicates that we should have what attitude or disposition toward God? Joyful and even earlier in the verse. We're crying out and we're longing, right? Yeah, so we want God, right? Or we should want God, okay? Uh, what is our assessment of being near God in this psalm? What should it be? Yeah, we want to be near God. There's a blessing and a value in it. Uh, what would we expect to find as we draw near to God? Verse 5. Specifically with what? Okay, yeah, the joy of the Lord is our strength, right? Okay, another parallel passage, good. I think verse 10 lays out this assessment that we should see God as better than all else in this life, okay? That he is a good giver in verse 11. No good thing does he withhold from those who walk uprightly. All right, so let's, uh, let's kind of tie all these ideas together. As you come to Psalm 84... There are a number of different ideas, and I think it's important for us to think about how they relate to each other. The first big idea is this idea of dwelling with God in verses 1 through 4. The second big idea is this idea of finding strength in God in verses 5 through 7. And the third big idea is this idea of trusting in God. So when we have three separate ideas, I think we have to ask ourselves, what is the relationship between those three ideas? Is it strength leads to dwelling, leads to trusting? Is it dwelling leads to strength, leads to trusting? Is it trusting leads to strength, leads to dwelling? What's the relationship between those three ideas? And I put a hint as to what I thought it was. It was find strength as you dwell with God by trusting in Him. So if we were going to sort of start at the beginning, it would be we have to trust in God, which is going to make us want to dwell or draw near with God, which is going to lead to us finding strength in God. And so the strength, I think, is the emphasis, the end point, because it's sort of bracketed on either side by the dwelling and the trusting. But I think that's the, the logical order, if you will, of how these things are related. But we start out in the psalm with this idea that we should long to dwell with God. Why? First of all, because God's presence is lovely. We see this in verse 1. How lovely are your dwelling places, O Lord of hosts. And when he says lovely, I don't think it is a, um, I don't think it's an assessment of the aesthetic quality like, hey, this is a really nice building. 
God's temple looks really fancy. I don't think that's the point of it. The point of it is that it is beautiful because it is the place where God is. And the irony of this is that we can, I think, encounter the beauty of God in the midst of circumstances that are not in and of themselves beautiful. You can see the beauty and power of God in a thunderstorm, even though if you've planned some huge event, you don't want it to be drenched with rain. You can find the beauty of God in a cold winter day, even though if you don't have a hat and coat and gloves, it might be at some vague level unpleasant, right? But we can see the beauty of God in those scenes of nature. We can also see the beauty of God in circumstances that appear to be horrifically tragic. Uh, for me, I think one of the moments that I most clearly saw God's beauty was... Um, it was either, I can't honestly tell you now, it was either early Thursday morning or early Friday morning when I was praying and singing and talking to Kelly. Never got a response from her, but had an overwhelming sense of God's presence. And when we have a sense that God is near, the dwelling place of God is lovely to us. However... Um, undesirable from a normal human perspective it might be. Secondly, we should desire or long to dwell with God because joy is found in God's presence. So he says, my soul longed and even yearned for the courts of the Lord, which implies he's not there, but he wants to be there. And as we have that desire and as we draw near to God, there is this opportunity for our heart and our flesh to sing for joy to God. And that's, I think, where he wants to gather and do that. Can it be done separately and individually? Absolutely. But is there also something amazing about it being done collectively and corporately when we are assembled? Yes. For them, this took place in the context of the temple. For us, it takes place in the context of the church. Or it could be in someone's house like it was last Saturday. But there's these opportunities as we desire to be where God is, God among us, there is a joy to be found there. There's this reality that even creation sees the good of being near God. I think there's this fascinating picture in verse 3 that the bird goes and builds a nest, maybe even on the temple grounds, I think is the picture in verse 3. And so even creation is drawing close to God in his presence. Um, depending on the translation, some, the NIV links verse 3 and the among your altars, Lord of hosts, uh, the NASB makes the connection less clear. Uh, but the point is, even at your altars, even near your altars, even the altars themselves, there is, there is something to be found in drawing near to God at this place, which is ironic because when you, say, when you consider the altars, again, we've talked about this before when we were looking at Exodus and Leviticus, the altars were a place of blood and death, of stench and fire, and yet, because it's the place where sin is being dealt with and God's presence is being made known, the psalmist says, I want to be there. Again, it's kind of a profound but interesting thing to consider. And then, those who dwell in praise are blessed. How blessed are those who dwell in your house, they are ever praising you. Now, when he says dwell, he's not, I think, saying live at the temple. He's not saying live at the church. He's not necessarily even saying live in one particular place. 
But there is this sense in which there is a desire of the human soul to be with God because God made us to want that. It, we see glimpses of it in the Old Testament with the pillar of, of cloud and the pillar of fire. We see glimpses of it in Revelation where God has come down to earth and now he dwells among his people and his people dwell with him. And this, this disconnect that we experience all throughout our lives is finally made whole when we're finally in God's presence forever. But there are, there are lesser glimpses of that along the way even now. So long to dwell with God. Secondly, find strength in God. How do we find strength in God? We find strength in God to the extent that our hearts are directed toward dwelling with God. So this idea of in whose heart are the highways to Zion or in whose heart are the highways, passing through the valley, going from strength to strength, appearing before God in Zion, the end point of that desire is there is a desire in the heart of the psalmist to gather with God's people. And when that is the desire of the heart, then that leads to a sense of strength. And the strength is not in us. This is something that I think we struggle with in life in general and also in connection, even, it even creeps into the church, this sense of self-sufficiency, this sense of I can do it on my own, this sense of I'm going to do great things for God, never mind the fact that I should be praying and seeking God's favor, never mind the fact that it's the Holy Spirit who does the work. There are people who sat out and say, I'm going to do this for God. And many of them miserably and spectacularly fail because that pride leads them to cover up sin and become abusive of their power and all of these sorts of things. But rather in this verse, we see a humility that depends on God and says, my strength is not from me, but from you. My power is not from myself, but from your spirit. The authority is not my words, but your words. Passing with persistence, even through the wilderness in order to reach this place of God's dwelling, their steps getting quicker, their hearts getting more eager as they, verse 7, go from strength to strength and reach their end point of their journey and appear before God in Zion. And then the underlying thing of the whole thing is calling out to God in prayer. Verse 8, O Lord, God of hosts, hear my prayer. Give ear, O God of Jacob. Behold our shield, O God, and look upon the face of your anointed. So there's this individual, hear my prayer. Then there's this corporate, our shield. Then it's back to the individual. Some have said, well, was this added later or whatever? I think there's nothing wrong with saying, God, help me. God, help all of us. God, help me, right? That's a natural progression, I think. There's nothing strange. It doesn't have to be some scholarly amendment to the psalm later on. It can just be an idea of God, hear our prayer. We pray for all of us and the one who's leading us. And then I pray verse 10. I contemplate what's true for me individually. It's just sort of that movement in verses 8 through 10. Um, why seek God in prayer? Because at the end of the psalm, we'll see because there's a trust that exists, not in ourselves. Our strength is found instead in God. But there is an assessment of life that says, honestly, in verse 10, a day in your courts is better than a thousand somewhere else. Do, you, do we really agree with that sentiment? One day is better than three years. 
roughly. Well, it, it, it's the picture of, uh, yes, God is, God's outside time, clearly. But the point is not how does God experience time. The point is a value assessment. Is one day with God better than three years doing your own thing? I think we would have to say yes. And I think we tend to say yes, but I think the way that we live doesn't always say yes. So we say, yes, a day with the Lord is better than three years of doing all the other things that this world has to offer. But then what do we do? We give God five minutes a day and we spend 40 hours a week watching TV. We give God five minutes of our day in prayer and we spend 10 hours a weekend doing some sort of sports activity. We say, yes, God's worth all of this, all of my time and my effort and my money and then if we check our, the way that we spend our time, the way that we spend our money, the way that we put forth our effort, the things that we talk about, the things that we love, yeah, we say a day with the Lord is better than a thousand somewhere else. But sometimes our daily experience doesn't bear that out. I'm not just, I'm not just preaching this at you. This is something that I've had to consider too because it's really easy for us to say, yeah, I'm a Christian. Yeah, I love God. Yeah, and, but, but then the benchmark for that in our minds is because I show up to church and I don't get caught doing anything really bad and God sets the bar so much higher, do you really and truly believe that a day with the Lord is better than three years doing things on your own? Because if you do, it changes your perspective and the way that you live. And the reason for this is verse 11 because of how amazing God is. He's a sun and a shield. He provides and he protects. He gives grace and glory. We want the approval of people. God wants us to want his approval. We, we say, as long as I have this many people like what I said on Facebook, or this many people know who I am, or this many people show up to my funeral, or this many people come to my birthday party, or all those sorts of things, those are the things that we measure success by, and God wants us to measure success by when the moment we stand before them, does he say, well done, good and faithful servant. And so much of our lives are consumed with getting the approval of people who really don't love us or care about us, who don't matter in the long term, and forgetting that it's God's approval that matters. And also this last phrase in verse 11, being convinced that no good thing does he withhold from those who walk uprightly. Because we look sometimes at those who seem to be walking uprightly and we say, I don't know that God's given them a whole lot of good things. We look at Job and we say, well, God didn't give him good things. God took away everything he had. Or we look at Paul and we say, Paul had a really hard life. And again, I think we have to go back to assessing these kinds of situations from God's perspective. God gave Paul persecution, but he rescued him from a course that was setting him toward hell. And Paul counted it a privilege to suffer for the sake of the gospel and saw it as a good thing that his life would be burnt out and used up for the sake of God's kingdom. And we tend not to look at the world that way. We tend to say, God gives me good things if I am healthy, if I am rich, if 
I am happy if all of my dreams come true, then God has not withheld any good thing from me. But the good things that God brings into our lives are quite often what we see in James chapter 1. We say, God, every good and perfect gift that comes down from the Father of light, what does James start his book with? You are experiencing trials and tribulations and persecutions, and God is working in you through them, and this is probably the specific good and perfect gift that he's referring to later in chapter 1 that God has put into their lives. So can we see, as God sees, trials and sorrow and, and need and all of those things as part of the good gifts that God brings into our lives to produce in us a desire for Him and a love for Him and a fervency to see His purposes accomplished in the world? Or do we just say, as long as things kind of go okay and I achieve some of my goals, life's good? I don't think we should settle for that. O Lord of hosts, God of armies, ruler of the angelic beings who Jesus could have called down but didn't when he was on the cross, how blessed is the man who trusts in you. Why? Because God is the God of armies and of hosts and of mighty things. We are blessed if we trust in him because then we will want to dwell with him because then we will find strength in him. So find strength as you dwell.